everybody. It's Jonathan Daniel Brown, and I am here for another JDB and NYC interview where I am meeting people on the East Coast who have been involved in the left for a whole lot longer than I have and uh, picking their brains, seeing what's going on. So today I am here with a very, very funny guy, great comedian, and one of the co-hosts of the Katie Halper show, Gabe Pacheco. That's right. I'd call myself a permanent guest (laughs) co-host. Yeah. I mean, you're there... I mean, it's every episode, almost every episode at this point, yeah, right? Yeah, I'd say it's 75% of the episodes I'm present whenever Katie is in town and uh, we can meet in person. By by in town, you mean when, because she's in Manhattan and you're in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is like a... What, what is we like- do, we have an interborough uh, sort of division and it's going to get worse when the L train shuts down. I think that uh, Northern Brooklyn is just going to become sort of like a North Korea yeah, my yeah. girlfriend keeps talking about how scary it's going to be in Greenpoint when there's no way to get across. But uh, I'd say within a few months, we're just going to form our own dialect. And after a couple of years, I mean, you're going to see some market differences between humans in uh, Manhattan and Greenpoint. I mean, you're going to have Marines helicoptering in to get some kielbasa before it's too late. That's for sure. Well, hopefully the government will start sending us care packages here. It's a... Uh... It's really remarkable. Um, the MTA being run by the state and not the city, that has created so much tension. And that's why, uh, I mean, that's why Cuomo's going to lose, right? A hundred percent. That is, uh, that's uh, something that I, I can't fathom that uh, the state, which is, doesn't really care about New York City, is, is what it feels like. And the MTA is like the perfect, like, snub to us that it, everything's running slow and uh, we can't, we have no agency over it. So who's the woman? Cynthia Nixon. Cynthia Nixon, Miranda. She's running for office. Now, I've said on previous episodes that anyone with an IMDb page, myself included, should be banned from public office. But I don't know. She's running a really great campaign. I feel like a dickhead for saying that now. I mean, it's uh, it's remarkable. She is doing uh, she's doing uh, she has a very Trumpy attitude, very aggressive, attacky campaign. But she's running with Bernie Sanders people. She's doing a very left wing. Uh, it, it, it's it's aggressive politics mixed with uh, social uh, dem social policy, which is uh, actually what Kanye West said yesterday. He believed in. Uh, but this is an actual example of of it in place. Like Zephyr Teachout is running the campaign. Yeah. Well, look, you got to sell the sizzle. And the right has figured that out faster than the left has. And we just have to catch up with um, the, st- the strategies and tactics that they're using. You know, I mean, Donald Trump won. And uh, we, the left needs people that have uh, not his, um, you know, the ignorance of his message, but, uh, but the delivery system. That's right. sort of like... As entertainment and politics com- continue to merge, it's going to be that kind of bombast that wins elections, regardless of actual policy. I mean, and this isn't new. Uh, John F. Kennedy, when he went on TV to uh, debate Nixon, uh, he understood the medium uh better than Nixon did. People that listened to Nixon on the radio, they thought that he won the debate. But everybody who watched it on TV thought that JFK won because he was tanned and, you know, he looked good. And that's what mattered. And so as we move forward, uh, we just need to have our side understand the medium and how to deliver their message in the way that gets the most eyeballs and uh, tickles the most people's reptile brains. And what it does boil down is is that the subway is just not working anymore. Right, right. right. I mean, you know, uh, you got to wait 
it doesn't matter what time of day it is, you're waiting an extra 10 to 15 minutes on the subway. And uh, work doesn't stop. Uh, I used to be a public school teacher. And, you know, I'd say that people asked what um, what it was like to be a public school teacher and why it seemed like such a terrible job. And I'd say, well, it didn't matter how late you stayed at work. What mattered was if you were one minute late 10 times. If you were one minute late 10 times, that's ground to be fired. Right. You get demerits and like, what, what, what is the opposite of the gold star? Right. Right. You get, you get unsatisfactory, uh, reports, um, in your mailbox and you get, you get, I, (laughs) you did feel like a kid at school because you were basically being graded with the same metrics that we grade the students. And, and by the way, I'm sure that the the school administration and the the superintendents and the principals don't really have to worry about this. They usually have some f- sort of transportation that's figured out for them. Or they have they live a, in the neighborhood. There's a, a movie called The Cartel, and it's about all of the different special interest groups that um, pour money into schools. And so it's really hard to point your finger at one reason why schools are failing, because there's this sort of web of special interests that – um, stifle any sort of uh, progress. But uh, they said it, when you go to an inner city school, you can tell who the administration is because the, it's all the Lexuses that are parked in the parking lot. Oof. <laughs> uh, it's people that uh, came came to do good, stayed to do well. And the schools, though, they're not getting that money. The, no. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> no, you watch The Wire, and uh, I mean, you know, there, there are parts of it that are, that are very accurate, and one of them is that there's storage rooms in schools that just have unopened boxes full of textbooks or um, tech that uh, nobody uses because uh, the teachers weren't trained. Yeah, the tech thing happened in L.A. a couple of years ago where LAUSD made some gargantuan deal with Apple to put an iPad in every classroom and it immediately was received with derision because you can get (laughs) basically the same kind of tablets for a third of the price. And in the end, I believe the plan was not implemented, but the iPads were bought. So there are, there is a, a warehouse somewhere just filled with uh, thousands of iPads that were meant for LAUSD students that they never got. And it well, was just a massive, massive waste of money and a giveaway to Apple. Yeah. And th- well, you got to think about this. Like, great. Everybody gets iPads. But unless there is a program in place and a budget in place to upgrade all of that hardware, um, you know, so that every three years you get new iPads, uh, there's planned obsolescence. All of that hardware is going to, like, uh, be useless once they upgrade the software. Mm. That's why I never upgrade the iOS on my uh, on my iPhone. Your shit's gonna get bricked. <laughs> yeah, like like you, you I used to foolishly upgrade, and then uh, the next day uh, it would be impossible to read the text messages. I um I got I got an old Samsung, and it's starting to do this thing where it sends me a message about three times a day, tell, asking me why I haven't updated the software yet. And like a it, like a hurt lover, right? It's because I don't want to buy a new phone. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I I don't want one. It's I want this one to keep lasting. But yeah, it is now built into the design that you are expected to upgrade after two years. Period. And uh, I don't know. I think about environmentally what that means too. And the dude, you watch the documentaries, and yeah, and you watch these like little orphans and emaciated people, like uh, like a human ant ants, just sort of like 
going down deep into the bowels of these volcanoes to scoop out the cobalt and whatever other um, minerals that you need for the hardware uh, in these iPhones. And then you're like, okay, we're going to toss it after three years. Uh, it just doesn't seem like a good use of human capital no. to not create machines that last longer. No, I mean, but hey, you know. More of an AK-47 design is what they need. You know? Right. A little more utilitarian. There was actually, God, I mean, it's weird how um, phones, I think about this a lot, where uh, we like carry around our weird prisons now. Like we have this thing we take with us that follows us and is constantly feeding data to Silicon Valley, uh, to to Wall Street, to advertisers across Madison Avenue and London and anywhere else, really. Anybody who wants your shit can get it from anybody. Uh, the, these, anybody but us, of course. Everyone has access to data but ourselves. That's right. And uh, what that means is, is that it's going to be easier and easier to target us to make more money off of us while making it harder and harder to organize. Uh, one thing that I feel really good about uh, quitting social media was, well, remember, I got kicked off of Twitter. I didn't quit, but... How'd you get... What What happened? Oh, I was a troll. I just said, like, mean shit to people with blue check marks, and because I had a blue check mark too, they had no choice but to actually see it. Uh, how Twitter works is it creates these this... this uh, hierarchy of It's coolness. a hierarchy, yeah. So if you're part of the Czech Republic, you only... <laughs> Uh, you don't have to see anything from the proles. You don't have to see anything from the stragglers or anyone who isn't part of the the uh, the, the golden scene. And by getting that verification check, which actually means nothing now because, uh, as you saw, Richard Spencer and all of these jack-offs had one, uh, it, it becomes easier and easier. Do you pay for the, gold, for the check or no. is the check just – You can just apply now. But before you had to get in through uh, talent agencies or publicity firms – or really anybody connected to someone who worked at Twitter. But eventually it became an open process, and now I believe they're just shut down temporarily. I believe that there are no new verification applications coming in. Uh, Twitter's just a disaster company, but essentially what it boiled down to, and I was actually hanging out with one of my friends yesterday. I used to troll a company he worked for. I used to troll the Daily Beast, and I said, like, fucking rotten things. And uh, he worked there, and, like, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> he's not there anymore, but we were just talking. He's like, yeah, I remember you said all that crazy shit. I had to, I had to like, get my team together and say, uh, stop, stop fighting with random people online. Like, you work for a news outlet. But the thing with Twitter is, is that that food fight atmosphere is now encouraged. Uh, and uh, once, once uh, I think Twitter started figuring out that you could make so much money and you can have people on Twitter all day as long as they're just angry at each other, why would they ever ban Trump? Why would they ever actually implement policies that would, uh, you know, get hate speech off of their site? It doesn't benefit them to do that. Look, the rational part of our brain is like, I don't want there to be a fistfight in this McDonald's. Right. But the moment that the fistfight in the McDonald's starts happening, you can't take your eyes off. Right. Or get your phone out and start filming <laughs> and yelling world star or whatever. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got involved with the left how you met Katie, on and on and on, stuff like that. Hey, uh, yeah, we can do that. Uh, so I've been uh, working with Katie on the Katie Halper Show for about two and a half years, I guess. And we were out of WBAI radio. And I really appreciated uh, the idea of being part of a local uh, radio scene. And this was before Donald Trump's um, campaign. This was before the uh, election. And uh I think we weren't quite as radical at that point um, in that we were already 
uh, I had always known Katie as a uh, dyed-in-the-wool communist. Right. Like a, she, she had her communist camp that she went to as a kid. Right. She's a red diaper baby. And I was raised in uh, Washington, D.C. So I, I grew up around politics my whole life. And um, my parents were, were excited to be part, you know, uh, card-carrying members of the Democratic Party. We were really excited when Bill Clinton was in office. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people that move to D.C., you know, you come to do good, you stay to do well, and like this sort of... So I was around people that were that were working in the swamp. Yeah. You know, that... Uh, and and they came from... My mom was an immigration lawyer, uh, helping people get into the country. So I met people from all over the world, um, most of them escaping from genocides. So that uh, informed a lot of the way that I uh, perceived, um, I guess, the international scene and, um, and saw that, you, that it's important to help people uh, escape, you know, hardship. And I, I heard their stories about injustice and political repression. And uh, a lot of it had to do with the United States government. And, right, you know, uh, our intervention in other countries. Your backyard if, was, you yeah. Know, if you live in D.C., yeah, and then also, you know, I learned Spanish um, from Salvadorians in D.C. There were a hundred thousand Salvadorian refugees that uh, came to the U.S. and specifically Washington between 1979 and like 1982, and they were all fleeing the civil war in El Salvador right after Archbishop Romero got assassinated. Uh, and there's a movie Romero starring Raul Julia. So, you know, if, if you liked his work in Street Fighter uh, 2, the movie, then you should check out uh, the rest of his canon. He's a he's a much better actor <laughs> than than uh, than what he's known for, unfortunately, with the geek Americans. But man. well, Adam's family's pretty good, too. You know? Yeah. You can't really go wrong with Gomez. <laughs> Wasn't. um the, No, never mind. I was about to ask if he was good. Uh, Garfield, but then I realized that was a different guy who was also a rule. So it was he was Garfield never... was Bill Murray. No, no, before Bill Murray, there was another Garfield. He died. Oh, uh, R.I.P. Yeah. Anyway, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I want to know the the name who the uh, voiceover actors were for Skeletor, who I love, uh, Cobra Commander, who is also amazing. I'll get to the bottom of this right now, actually. Yeah, because that's the cool thing about having. Uh, Phones. These tracking devices <laughs> is that sure they follow everything you do and send everything you've ever loved to data miners, but but you can actually little, uh, you can find out who Skeletor is right now. Yeah. And uh, so Skeletor in the live action film was played by Franklin Langella, but that's not what you want. You want the do you want the filmation eighty three to eighty seven or the nineteen ninety or the two thousand two to two thousand four Skeletor? Oh, There's multiple Skeletors. Oh, late uh, early eighties. Okay, so that's a guy named Alan Oppenheimer. Uh, he was born in 1930. Uh, he's 88 years old. He's from New York. He's been married three times. He's single. Uh, and he's Skeletor. I like that. I like that Skeletor has been married three times. I like yeah. that uh, this is a guy who just, like, his his desire to take over the world, it got in the way. I wonder if he used any of the insults he, he hurled against Beastman and Merman uh, against his uh, former lovers before divorcing them. Man, he can be the master of my universe. And, uh, yeah, and then there's the voiceover actor who played Cobra Commander in Starscream. Right, so Cobra Commander, let's see. I just, it was so bizarre that they uh, they gave that role to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So, in the Sunbow and Deke series, and uh, I want to give a shout-out to Deke, because Deke was the creator of almost every cartoon I watched as a kid. 
may they rest in peace. It was a guy named Christopher Collins, and then a guy who doesn't have a Wikipedia page or an IMDb, or he has an IMDb page, uh, a guy named Chris Lotta. And then in Sergeant Savage and his Screaming Eels, Cobra Commander was played by Scott McNeil. In Spy Troops and Valor vs. Venom, Michael Dobson. There's like a million of these fucking Cobra Commanders. Mark Thompson and Sigma Six and Charlie Adler and Resolute and Renegade. So lots of Cobra Commanders. See, no one was. This is. It's not like with Optimus Prime where you had um, one guy who played him forever. Like there's no monogamy with these roles. They don't have that loyalty. Yeah. But I, I just, I think uh, that early 80s series of G.I. Joe I also uh, was formative for me. And I, I loved uh, the, the worldview that it, it, it gave me because in, it, it pitched that uh, G.I. Joe was fighting this group of international terrorists known as Cobra. Right. It was no longer what, what, what was happening was that the, the jingoism of G.I. Joe began to fade away with the rise of Cobra, which is kind of interesting. With but these I, dolls that were used to sell like the Vietnam War at first, then became just pure uh, balls to the wall fantasy. Sure, but it's like a stateless, uh, territoryless uh, group of uh, international terrorists, yeah. which is very very uh, similar to you know how we see uh, ISIS today. Or um, they they don't particularly have any agenda besides world domination, yeah. which is fun. It's nice to have classic good versus evil in a world where it gets harder and harder to understand what is actually good and what is bad. But also, there was uh, Zaymat and Tomax, who were the two twins, and those twins uh, were um, like a multinational corporation. Wait, 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 wait. I don't remember these two. So it's two dudes who uh, have sympathetic, uh, like they share a nervous system, almost, where if one of them gets punched, the other one feels it. So it's are they are they like Siamese, like Greg Kinnear and Matt Damon and stuck on you? Or? No, it's more like the anecdotes of Aboriginal um, peoples where one will die a thousand miles away from the other and the other one will sense it and know. <laughs> Whoa, I dig that shit. It's like, a, it's the force. Yes, yes. So these two are connected with a, a version of the force, but Cobra had uh, different facets to their evil, right? So you had like a, a um, Zartan and his dreadnoughts and they kind of... Um, exemplified this chaotic, more punk rock, uh, mm-hmm. road warrior-like aesthetic. But then you had uh, Zaymat and Tomax, who dressed in suits and were kind of like they international were... businessmen. Right. And it was the corporate front for... For Cobra. Yes. That's great. Because in the end, like, Captain Planet does that too. Almost all <laughs> of the villains in Captain Planet have some sort of... Uh, business front guys like ted turner made so much fucking money consolidating the media and then they went and said let's make this environmental cartoon that was that was his personal project of his he was devoted to captain planet on a hands-on basis which is very funny because this is the guy who uh (laughs) guys like him are just so interesting because they have so much money and so much power but they still see themselves as like civic leaders who have a responsibility to make cartoons about green men in tights who who plant trees and like bust up polluters when i mean i don't know you ever been to the cnn building it's right where where he is where they're in fact the um uh sort of like top level cogs in the system that is creating all of the devastate ecological devastation right it's a lot of lot of litter going on there a lot of litter at a although Although it's 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 arguable how much power he even has now that his uh now that Time Warner has sort of scooped up most of the Turner content now it's all been 
consolidated even beyond him. There isn't really a fake. What's interesting is the more and more I think about this, the more I think uh, when you think about like CEOs today versus say 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the kind of like weird flamboyance and character that a lot of these guys used to put on have sort of faded away into blandness. Like when was the last time you heard about uh, an actually flamboyant wild CEO? Like I think that uh, besides Trump, I guess, like nobody talks about the – I don't know, the, the head of AT&T as, as if he's like a particularly interesting guy. The, the closest thing in, in the telecommunication space is that John Laguerre dude who just announced he's merging T-Mobile with Sprint, like he wears like pink and purple and that's like, we're and he says fuck now and then. Like we're supposed to be excited about that asshole? Well, is it the, the titans of tech who now kind of take on that role of being like the flamboyant individuals like a Bezos with his robot dog? Yeah, Bezos has his, he just did his, uh, his space launch last, uh, yesterday, I guess, which really, or a few days ago, but then he, he, uh, he said in an interview that with his Amazon winnings, his only priority was space travel, and he sees a world where trillions of humans live on multiple planets. Uh, I think guys like him and Elon Musk, who are so dedicated to taking advantage of the privatization of NASA under Obama, are really just trying to, uh, I don't know, fill some sort of like void in their conscience for the fact that they just completely destroyed our economy. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was what was it? I think I was watching a Werner Herzog documentary, and uh, it had Elon an interview with Elon Musk, and his psyche seems so uh, damaged. He he says that in his dreams they're mostly nightmares, and he wakes up screaming because I'm paraphrasing, but he's terrified of uh, an apocalypse on Earth. That is, and that's what's guiding him. Okay. It's his guiding principle to like sort of leaving the planet. That's totally wild uh, and and also makes sense. Okay, so I'll say it on the air. I don't give a shit. He's never going to hear it. I used to be on fairly friendly terms with Justin Roiland, who created Rick and Morty. Okay. And he has been negotiating with Adult Swim for season four for a while. Like, the, they're, they're kind of holding out, which is why there hasn't been an announcement. Even though the show's a hit, they want a shitload of money. And they're kind of notoriously cheap skates. Like, the show for a while was fighting against the animators' union. And they... Uh, they have a very nihilistic attitude uh, in general from what I've heard from people that have done uh, voices and written on it. Uh, I'm not really in touch with the guy anymore. But when that Shekwan sauce thing happened where all of these like fucking psychopaths were like rampaging through McDonald's across the country demanding their, their special Rick and Morty sauce, I shot him, Royland an email and I was like, hey man, like you gotta stop this shit. I don't know how, but like you got, and, and he was like- With great power comes great responsibility. Right, I mean, and I wasn't trying to blame him per se, although yeah, it's arguable, but, but I was just trying to say like, you should like just put out a message saying the shit is bad. Also like at the same time, Dan Harmon was just like getting drunk and yelling at people for like four days straight. And I don't know, they're, they're fucking disaster people. But anyway, he said, I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, 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 McDonald's did this without my permission. I'm absolutely disgusted and I'm too busy negotiating with Elon Musk right now for the fourth season to deal with this shit. And, I said, what, what do you mean you're talking to Elon Musk? And he said, well, the truth is, is that we are at the end of days and there is a strong possibility. Actually, you know what? Why don't I just read the email? Because it's just so fucking wild and I don't want to get it wrong and get sued. 
Uh, it but is, now it's like the tech guys that are uh, that are that are apocalyptic. When a hundred years ago, it was these. Yeah, why like, Protestant uh, m- millennial millennial? These like religions that were coming out of upstate New York that thought that we were near the end of days, and were predicting um, us all being beamed up in a rapture type situation. Yeah. So I emailed him and then he said, let's see. So I emailed him about the Shekwan sauce thing. And then he said, uh, I have no way of controlling human beings. It bums me out that they would be this way. I hate humanity. Then he said, the world is fucked. Period is a mess. When Beavis and Butthead came out, there were lots of kids catching themselves on fire uh, this is Darwin's law of natural selection. Humanity is largely fucked. Current way of living is unsustainable. There will be a global economic collapse and huge world war, urban warfare, martial law, chaos within the next few decades. I'm pretty sure we're in the final years of mankind. Don't beat yourself up too hard. Spend time with ones you love. And I hope to be hugging my loved ones when the nuclear blast wall envelops me. And so... I said, "Is that from Elon Musk?" Because I know he was mentioning Elon Musk, and he had met, uh, and he had started posting pictures on Twitter and Instagram of himself hanging out with a guy. And he said, uh, "He said there's a good chance we're living in a simulation." And that's what Elon Musk believes as well. So the world's about to end, but even if it does, we're all in the matrix anyway. So these are what these guys genuinely believe. I don't know if you uh, know about Steve Huffman, the CEO of Reddit. He spends millions and millions of dollars on doomsday shelters. Wow. Yeah. This is like all of these guys in tech uh, who have ushered in this age of chaos are now trying to escape from it. There was a a, a billionaire, a guy I think named Nick Hanauer, who said, the pitchforks are coming and you're not going to be able to get to your yachts on time. And billionaires like me are completely screwed. He had a, a TEDx video that was really interesting. And he talked all about that. But I feel like these millionaires and billionaires now know that. They know that there's this populist rage. And whether it's coming from Bernie uh, and the left or whether it's coming from the the fascist alt-right, it does not matter to them. All they know is that for the first time in their lives, they are a target and and, and not something to be admired by the public. Yes. And, And that's really interesting to me. Yeah, uh, I think in the apocalypse, I would want my own personal carnival cruise ship. I think that would be cool. You know, just I'd I'd like to be mobile. I'd like to be able to dock in any port I want. As long as there's a Johnny Rockets, right? Hell yeah, with malted vanilla milkshakes. That's the shit. I've never actually been on a cruise ship. I've always wanted to go. Uh, I had the uh, I had the privilege of going on a cruise ship once uh, with my grandma when uh, it was like her seventieth seventy ninth birthday. We went to Alaska, and I thought it was going to be awesome. And it was a bunch of old people on the deck watching glaciers fall into the ocean. So was uh, it a, a princess I, cruise? I I think uh, you know I'm not going to tell you the name. Okay, yeah, we keep it to ourselves because I don't have it on hand but what i do know is that that was my first that was firsthand um witnessing of global warming was watching big chunks of ice fall mm. into the ocean yeah, that's a scary fucking thing <laughs> All right. anyway i went i went on a little bit of a tangent here uh <laughs> so i don't know if that's me agreeing with these like uh t- techno um pessimists yeah but uh i definitely do see the the result i've seen the results firsthand of uh the ecological devastation mm. 
Uh, yeah, I, I went on a little bit of a tangent here. Uh, I wanted to go back to your time in D.C. Oh, yeah. And so how you got into the left, comedy, comedy and the left. All this stuff. The whole thing, yeah. Well, I've been, in, through it. I've been in New York for about uh, 15 years, and I think um, comedy just came naturally from you know wanting to reach more people and talk to people. I was a public school teacher in New York City, and it was fine, but um, yeah, it just felt limited. You know, like I wasn't affecting as much change as I really wanted to or expressing myself as much as I wanted to. So I got into doing open mics in the city and then open mics turned into making money doing stand-up and uh, fell in with Katie Halper. She needed a co-host and we aligned politically. I mean, we'd read a lot of the same books and had similar uh, sensibilities. Do you think she made you more radical over time? Uh... I think that being on the show exposed me to a lot more activists and a lot more interesting people working in specific fields. Mm. So we we got to talk to experts um, who were advocating for the decriminalization of sex workers. And it just, it was that I spent more time thinking about the topic than I had before. Mm. Or... Another example is talking to people who, you know, I've always been against the war on drugs, and I've always wanted drugs decriminalized, but we had it on a guy, Johan Hari came on, and he um, described his book, uh, Chasing the Scream, and reading that, I got to see how drug policies are implemented in a variety, in a bunch of other countries. So just seeing, um, just seeing that and listening to people talk about uh, how... Uh, uh, what I think of as a sort of a utopian premise, which is like decriminalization, how it's actually implemented in other places, to see that sort of enriched my my worldview. And I think that's been the benefit of being on the Katie Halper show, has been, you know, it didn't make me more <laughs> woke. Yeah. But it did uh, give me... Um, it did introduce me to more people who had spent a greater amount of time thinking about these things. Experts. Yeah, people who actually understand the the systems at play rather than just people who talk about them like me. Yeah, well, you know, it's one thing to, like, wave a flag that says, like, uh, stop war, end war, and then someone who's actually, uh, you know, really thought about that in specific situations. And how do you, how do you go about creating a world where you have alternate forms of conflict resolution rather than uh smart bombs right i mean well the 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 big question is (laughs) drones how are we gonna stop uh uranium tip bullets we have to start this the it's gonna be hard to start the smart if if we can't it's gonna be hard to stop smart bombs when we can't even get conflict resolution right in a lot of our own organizations yes but uh you know, I, I digress a little bit. I don't want to get too much into the Vampire Castle stuff, but I, I do want to ask you, uh, you mentioned to me that you were the uh, son of a Chicano activist. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, my parents were, you know, my dad is uh, a Mexican-American. He's been, he's a Chicano. Uh, he's been in the U.S., you know, he was, his parents were migrant workers uh, who would travel between, um, you know, the northern parts of Mexico and uh, Texas and California uh, throughout the, um, you know, for for different agricultural seasons mm-hmm. uh, before settling in Riverbank, California. 
And so, you know, his first language was Spanish. He was raised by his grandparents um, on the other side of the border until his parents could pick him up and bring him back um, to live to live here. So, you know, he was the product. He was ESL. You know, the pro, uh, he's super grateful to the public school teachers that he had early on that helped him learn English. And, you know, and, and that's when I was a public school teacher uh, in the Bronx, I would, you know, I had a bunch of uh, students who were recently from the Dominican Republic or Ecuador or Mexico. And, you know, in listening to my dad's stories, I would see uh, reflections of uh, his story in, in them. And uh, so I've always had a soft spot for people who come to this country to, like, better their lives and I, I also feel this uh, that there's an invisible class of people here that are the second class citizens, mm-hmm. you know, and we can't have a full democracy when we have it. It's not slavery, but there is a an unprotected class of people that live in the shadows. Right. And that, I think, actually is a source of tension between some of the left, where you have uh, a lot of downwardly mobile, middle-class, working-class white kids, people like myself, who maybe came from a more affluent family but have grown up in a future where that type of affluence is no longer possible, and then people who have never had anything ever. And now you have (laughs) this this very, very wide and disparate group of people who are getting together for the first time in what feels like 50, 40 years to make a big change. And of course, there's just an insane amount of infighting. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, uh, you know, that's the that's the issue that uh, the bosses have always divided and conquered the uh, working classes mm-hmm. by separating us into different categories, being documented, undocumented, um, men versus women, black, white, yellow, brown, finding different ways to sort of uh, break us into smaller, like little niche groups. And telling us that our interests are different, right? Which you know, as annoying as the friend, uh, as annoying as the phrase intersectionality ha- has sort of become, especially when used amongst neoliberals, there's so much truth to that, though, because what it boils down to is that everybody's problems overlaps onto everybody else's problems yes. by virtue of capitalism. Yes. Well, you know, uh, if <laughs> I think of it like we we should all have uh, universal health care. Um, because, uh, if one person gets sick, you know, you look at like the anti-vaxxing. Oh, that's big in, in LA. That's probably bigger in Los Angeles than it is in New York. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not a huge deal here, but this, uh, you know, if, if every, like you want everybody to be able to go to the doctor so that, uh, one sick person doesn't spread their illness. It, it's, uh, what do you call it? The herd herd protection or something like that yeah herd immunity so i'm i'm looking at i i kind of think of like well how can we help the most people mm-hmm. oh, what can we do to benefit everyone um you want to get rid of crime then you take care of like maslow's hierarchy of uh needs for all the people and then that's going to minimize the number of people out there committing petty crimes to survive uh you you hear these like stories of, you know, drug addicts going to break into people's houses or break into people's cars or commit crimes because they're under the influence. Well, if drugs are decriminalized and those people have a safe place to go and use or 
then you don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have a spread of HIV uh, based on intravenous drug use if there's needle sharing programs. So this, like, how can we reduce the harm of the vices that we're never going to get rid of? Mm -hmm. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, we had a, a recent episode with a, an activist named Phoenix Kalita and the host of a podcast called The the Black Podcast. And she spoke about FOSTA-SESTA and specifically how this new law is going to take sex workers from the internet back to the streets again. Oh, yeah. And so we pass laws that are designed to stop trafficking that actually encourage trafficking. Yeah. And we live in this weird what, – what capitalism does is it creates this – oh, God, here I go – the upside down <laughs> – don't I feel bad about that? I, I don't even like Stranger Things that much, but it does. It creates this upside down where things that are designed to help people hurt people, or they are sold as if they are helping people while hurting people. Uh, where, where marketing matters more than the actual content. Where going back to Cynthia Nixon, where uh, braggadocio and, and where and where bombast replaces all policy and. You don't really have a choice. There's no way to opt out of a system where that is what works because that is by design. Yeah. Whether, you know, whether it was JFK or whether it's uh, George W. Bush, who everyone wanted to have a beer with for some fucking reason, or whether it was Barack Obama, the coolest guy ever, whether it was Bill Clinton, slick, charming, beautiful Southern gentleman. Who Ma could play his saxophone. You could play the saxophone on Arsenio Hall. We love that shit. We always eat it up. We have always been media-drenched to the point where we can't always see basic right and wrong. It's just now that because of the internet, it is so much more glaringly obvious, especially with you know networks like Twitter and Facebook selling everything so brazenly. They, yeah. they have taken off this mask that prevents us from seeing what they... Uh, sorry, they've taken off the mask that prevented us from seeing what their true purpose was. The, there's no doubt that it's all surveillance companies at this point. And to go back a little bit to the tech stuff, it is weird that leftists are not leftists. It is weird that Americans who get who got so upset about the NSA taking all of our shit don't seem to mind that Google, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter do the same exact thing, but for money rather than for national security. It's interesting uh, that um, I, I, I think of government employees as being more incompetent. And so I'm less... We all do. I'm less, I'm less concerned with them harvesting our data because I don't think that they know how to... Uh, they, it's above their pay grade to be as nefarious with it as it is for uh, Facebook, Amazon, and Google. Right, because they've got the best and the brightest working on the algorithms, and they're willing and they're able to pay them enough. Whereas the government is like people punching in, you know, they're they're doing it nine to five, and government employees and they're waiting to get you know a pension and retire. They don't have yeah. the brand. They they have a loyalty to the country that you know, assuming I assume drives them, or at least for the first couple of years till they get you know that till it becomes just another job. But yeah. but then you know, uh, you know I have an I have an uncle who works for the NSA, uh -huh. and I don't even know what he does. He doesn't really talk about it. I assume there's security clearances, but uh, I mean he's a mathematician, right? So I assume it involves codes and cracking shit. But I don't know. I'll never know. And 
He, I mean, he's going to retire next year. And like the way he's always treated it was very dispassionately. Like, this is just like my job. Right. And they don't have shares in the company. Right. You know, they're they're out at 55 or they're out at 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they'll make money when they leave the government job and they transition into consulting. Right. But there is no the it's almost as if uh, what what is you know, we, we are stuck between this shit sandwich of a, a government that wants to track our every move to protect us versus a group of businesses that want to. Uh, sell everything we've ever known and loved back to us. Yes. Our own data. Uh, the government, uh, a, a big difference too is the government doesn't have, uh, government offices are like bland, terrible places that you can't wait to leave. And for these guys in the NSA. Hey, the Pentagon has a food court, I read. I heard they have like a, <laughs> like, like a Burger King and shit. Oh, nice. No, they got their own Johnny Rockets in there. <laughs> Same with the Carnival Cruises. <laughs> but, uh, but like, you know, I, I'd say these government um, places don't have foosball tables and uh, mandatory, um, you know, company brunches uh, where, where the fun, like I'd say in these tech companies, the, uh, the Google campus or the like Facebook's campus creates this environment where like the, your social life is inextricably tied to your business life. Right. To encourage crunch, essentially. We've got a bowling alley at Facebook. We got ping pong, three full bars, uh, a five-star restaurant from Wolfgang Puck and Mario Batali yeah. as soon as he comes back from famous jail. Date your coworkers. Uh, there's childcare here. Keep talking shop. Spotify 24- freezes eggs. Yes. Yeah. Don't don't have a baby now. You can have one when you're 70. Who gives a shit? We'll the, freeze them. The NSA is not doing that. And... Uh, these all these government workers, they don't talk about their jobs with their um, loved ones. Right. They don't talk shop after work because they they're under strict policies where they can't disclose what they do. They'll get court martialed. Yeah. Yeah. So that in and of itself is uh, actually I'd I'd say a um a speed bump towards uh, innovation, whether or not you look at it negatively or positively. But I like that built-in um, sort of uh, if resistance to efficiency. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it will... <laughs> I, 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 it, the question is, who, who knows more about us now? Yes, I'd say it's Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. They have... Well, Mark Zuckerberg was always saying companies over countries. That was his motto in the first few years of Facebook when he was doing internal meetings. Uh, Everything I've read, uh, this boss guy who said, yeah, so some people might die in some terrorist attacks. Like, that's that's the price we pay for progress. They genuinely, clearly do not actually see the damage that these sites caused as anything but acceptable losses. Yeah. Which is a weird, like, government phrase that is now entering the corporate mainstream. Like, collateral what are ex- damages. Right. What is the collateral damage of what these companies do? Uh, well, what is it? It's the cost of doing business. It's like the, from Fight Club when, the, what is it, Ed Norton's character is, um, he uh, looks to see how many car crashes the uh, the cars, the, fa- the faults in the design mm-hmm. will cause. And if it's less, uh, the if, if the lawsuit's, um, will take less money than the profits they make. It's acceptable. Right. So, you know, instead of car crashes now, uh, the car crashes are the ways that these social media companies undercut democracy. There were, this was actually, so uh, Mary Barra, who was um, 
Well, she was sold to the public as the first woman CEO of an automotive company, was involved in a massive scandal where there were 84 safety recalls involving 30 million cars. And she was called before the Senate and she had to talk about these recalls and deaths attributed to a, a faulty ignition switch that was leading to everything from crashes to blow-ups to all kinds of shit. People were dying, and essentially, they put it under the rug. Mary Barra did everything in its power to minimize the impact of, of or minimize the 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 pub the PR impact of these deaths. Yeah, damage Rather, control. Right. It mattered more what the public heard than what actually happened. Like they didn't care if people died. They care if people dying went back to them. And that's what's uh that's the thing. So much of corporate America is just about covering your ass by any means necessary so you don't lose your job. And that's that might be common in the government as well, but for corporations there is a acceptable level of negligence when profit is on the line. Well, there's a so I have a friend who was a marine, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Sullivan, and he uh, he got the came back home with a multi system organ failure because of the uh, vaccines that they were giving them against anthrax and everything else before they went off. And so there's an acceptable number of people who are allowed to die from the uh, vaccines that we give them before they go and fight in the, uh, the Middle East. Mm. And, um, yeah, and the government also won't uh, give them health care when they get back because they won't diagnose their uh, symptoms as a, as a syndrome. So there's, there's that. Um, the government does that, too. Yeah, it's... In the end, people just and don't people want can to get look in that trouble. guy up, Tom Sullivan. Tom Sullivan. Yes, he got fucked over. It so his like. family has a foundation now that uh, you know you can give money to, and they raise awareness about this Gulf War syndrome uh, for troops coming back with. I was reading about. Ailments. I was reading about a lot of soldiers in Iraq, uh, or a group of soldiers in Iraq who stumbled upon abandoned chemical weapons uh, like i was reading about a group of soldiers in iraq who stumbled upon a, a, a an abandoned chemical weapons facility and they were all exposed but because there was never really an official announcement that any sort of chemical weapons were founded chemical weapons weren't found in iraq but disposed chemical weapons were found and all of these soldiers got sick but they couldn't go public because this was all deeply deeply you know, uh, under security, many, many levels of security clearances. So they were getting sick and the VA couldn't help them because then they'd have to reveal to the doctors what actually happened. Right. Yeah. So people, people die because of this shit, because nobody wants to lose, because nobody wants to lose their job or get fired. People will die. And that is another (laughs) fucked up symptom of capitalism. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, (laughs) <laughs> I Mark, get, sorry, <laughs> heavy shit. I, no, it's totally, it's it's uh, it's totally fine. But uh, that's I just like, always like to raise awareness about that that um that our military is um is getting uh people in our military are getting sick, uh, and their illnesses are going undiagnosed because uh, the government has pumped them full of chemicals. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Um. So yeah. Um. So you've been involved in the left in New York for, I guess, a few years now. And granted, it's in it's in your roots, so you've always had a lefty bent. But now that you're getting more involved and now that it's a part of your job with the show, what are some lessons that we on the West Coast can learn? Because, like, 
because New York has been organizing for longer than we have. The left in L.A., I've been getting involved with a couple of small groups, like If Not Now and Ground Game L.A., and I've gone to a few DSLA, DSALA Food for Solidarity meetings and things like that. But we are a few years behind, many years behind where New York is in terms of building a, a true uh, left of center leftist coalition. It does not exist yet on the West Coast, but it's it, – it's getting there, but we have a lot to learn. So what are, what are some things that we need to learn from you guys? I just think that the Los, in Los Angeles, everything, everyone is so much more atomized because it's uh, all car culture. Mm. It makes it very difficult to, uh, to um, it makes it more challenging to get together. So f- just finding any way where you can build groups around common interests, you know, go on, uh, go on socialist hikes through uh, the canyons, just which canyons? So you talking about Griffith Park? You talking about Mulholland? I'm being a dick. Sorry. No, I love I love all the canyons. All yeah. the canyons. Topanga ever- Canyon. Go- <laughs> I like Topanga Canyon a lot too. It's a great if you drive through Topanga for half an hour, you get to Malibu. Malibu's yeah. amazing. It's filled with evil people, but it is a fucking beautiful, beautiful beach. Yeah, find organize all of the uh, surf instructors. You know, it's actually one really cool <laughs> you're not totally wrong that there is work that can be done there. One really cool thing that happened that the uh the proletariat did was they fucked with Carbon Beach. Now Carbon Beach is a beach in Malibu that is called the Billionaires Beach because David Geffen and a group of other billionaires all have massive houses along this beach. Now, they put up these fences that were totally illegal because Because the beach is public. The beach is public water. Right. Where the water meets the sand is public land. That it rhymes and it's true. And the California Coastal Commission has been fighting against these billionaires for years and years. So a, a group of activists just started going on the beach and more and more people started showing up. And so these guys started hiring these security guards to stand in front of the beach and glare at people and yell at them. But the truth is they had no fucking power at all. So for all the harassment they did, it was for nothing. And more and more people started jumping the fence and cutting through and walking on the beach. And (laughs) David Geffen moved. He had to fucking, he was so disgusted that these, how dare these, 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 these lowers go on my beach. That's right. He sold his fucking house and he just bailed altogether. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle sharing his own beach with 20 to 30 people a fucking day. So he just, he got out of Dodge. It's, it's a great story and a huge victory that the truth is, is that you can beat billionaires just by annoying the shit out of them. Yes. Yeah. And this, uh, that reminds me of, uh, what is it? Mark Zuckerberg. He took over, um, I think it was like 700 acres of land. Oh, in, in Hawaii. In Hawaii. And, uh, and some of the land, uh, a strip of it. Is uh is common grounds that all of the natives have permission to use and share, and he uh, put up a fence to keep them out of this uh, shared land that's that they have right to. So you know, I think they could take a lesson from <laughs> from what these guys did with Geffen. And you gotta just you gotta you gotta tear down the walls. Just fuck with them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these guys think that because they have money, they have the right to step on everyone and anything. And the truth is, with their armies of lawyers and professionals and employees at bay, they can unless people put up active resistance. So, what are some areas where the DSA is focused in uh, Los Angeles right now? So, here's what's really interesting. I've been advocating for a long time that the DSA LA needs to split. Because there is only one chapter for the entire city. And Los Angeles is the size of New England. So you can put 
<laughs> you can there, there's there's four states essentially worth of people in this in this area, and there's only one chapter. Yeah, it does not. So right now there there there's just a lot of conflict simply because you have a lot of people fighting over a very limited resource pool. So you have the Hollywood Labor Group, which is doing a really really important work uh, involving in, in in pushing unions and the entertainment industry to do better and. And, and fighting for rights for everyone, from assistants to actors to stunt people. They're doing amazing work. I love the TV show Fall Guy. The TV show Fall Guy? Yeah, you got to check that out. It's from it's like from the 80s, but it's about a stuntman who solves crimes. That so I just love amazing. the idea of like unionizing stunt guys. Well, stunt people are in people, stunt SAG. Peeps. Stunt, stunt peeps. Stunt peeps actually are in SAG-AFTRA, but what's wild is that uh, they get no representation. There is, uh, I've talked a little bit about this before, but there are two parties that are constantly fighting over the actors' union at SAG-AFTRA. Uh, there is United for Strength, which is the dominant party, which is led by celebrities, and the, most of those celebrities are also members of the Producers Guild. So there's a very clear conflict of interest. Absolutely. Then there's Membership First, which has not been in power for maybe 20 years, and they're the lefties. But they are mostly silenced. They are not treated well. They very rarely have any voice. So SAG-AFTRA merged. It was SAG. There was SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. And then there was AFTRA, which is the American Federation of Television and Radio, I think, announcers? Like... Or, but but it, it's radio people. And yeah. by the way, podcasts, are they, they haven't even tried at any point to do anything involving podcasting yet, which is really interesting. I think some of these bigger companies like Pineapple and Gimlet and uh, Earwolf, Midroll, are going to eventually have to go under some sort of union plan because these people read ads. These comedians are reading ads on these shows and not getting paid, which is wild. Anyway, I digress. Um, interesting. The unions... If you if you're reading ads, you got to get paid. I agree. Like if you're gonna be, nobody should sell out for free. <laughs> yeah, it's a very basic, basic labor issue where if you are told to promote another company, you must get money from that company. Period. Like that is uh, one of the weird, and, and and a lot of this to go back to the tech companies is because of this weird sort of like, uh, uh you, you know. Uh, disruptor capitalism where all of the rules that have been in place for the last 50 years are now completely in flux and uh we have many many years of catch-up to do and they have to happen fast but yes so sag and aftra uh they essentially don't really do much for their lower end workers and stunt people are on that spectrum so last year i think something like three or four stunt people died there was like a guy who fell to his death on the set of the walking dead there was, um, there was, oh yeah, a woman was killed on the set of Deadpool 2. What? Yeah, uh, it was a stunt woman who was uh, doing a motorcycle, uh, she was doing like a motorcycle shot as Domino was killed. And it was like a huge fuck up. And none of these companies ever get in trouble when this happens. And SAG-AFTRA usually keeps their mouth shut. They always say, we're looking into it, it could, then it just goes away. And the truth is, is that the current hierarchy of SAG-AFTRA benefits from cooperating with the studios more than it does its lower ranking members. So sometimes uh, I hear a lot of people on the left who are like, you know what, uh, you'd solve all your problems if you just join a union. But I'm in a union and it kind of sucks. So it's this weird thing where I, I want SAG-AFTRA to get better. God damn, I do. But it's going to be hard to do un until, uh, until the leadership gets changed. So one thing that Hollywood labor does that I really like is that they push up against 
some of this stuff going on. They push up against studios. They push up against uh, mistakes unions make. But they don't get a ton of press, and that's by design because the press in L.A. is under attack. Well, that's uh, well, you brought up like this sort of the, the leaders of the union, the leadership is sometimes at odds with its uh, rank and file right. soldiers uh, and members. And that's why I like these wildcat strikes that the teachers unions were putting on. Love it. Um, in Arizona yeah, now? Yeah. And then uh, I mean, I'm all for this. Like teachers in this country have such an insane burden placed upon them with so little in the way of any kind of material, tangible reward, uh, the the things that at least teachers our age, for yes. sure, teachers our age, people in their late 20s and 30s, they do not have what teachers 30 years ago got, which frankly like wasn't that awesome either, but was at least possible to create a middle-class living for yourself doing. And, and a lot of, from what I've read about teachers, uh, Teachers' unions is that a lot of times seniority is a, is a, is what's favored, and so older teachers generally have it much better than the younger ones. Correct That's, me if I'm wrong. Yeah, so the older the older teachers have it much better, and things that I noticed at least when I was working uh, when I was working um, and I first started, I would show my paycheck. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I would open it in the teachers' lounge and be like, "Oh, that's how much I'm making." And these older teachers. They were not into me showing my pay. They were like, why are you doing that? They had this very like bougie. It's a boomer attitude. Uh, sensibility of like, why are you showing your money? And I was like, dude, we are, we're all under the same tiers. I can, how long have you been doing this? I can calculate exactly how much money you're making. I know what you make. So there's no sort of shame in um, disclosing it. Like the more transparency we have, the easier it is for us to... Um, sort of work together right and uh organize it's a group behavior that i have explicitly noticed with baby boomers the anxiety or fear or just refusal to talk about how much they make as if that inoculates themselves from the consequences of what money does to people and uh at, le- at least anecdotally you know i can't say that this is happening everywhere but these the senior teachers were um typically uh women who were married to guys mm-hmm. who had um higher income jobs right and if the their husbands were the primary income primary providers and had the income uh that created a more affluent life for them then they were less in less inclined right. to um organize because their paycheck didn't matter as much so how do you work with that? How do you get solidarity in a union when the disparity in that union is the same as an unorganized workforce? Yeah. When the pay disparity is still there in a union, how do you pressure the leadership to do the right thing and to actually create more parity for less senior members? Yeah, I think uh, I think the the less senior members just have to go go rogue, yeah, and do and organize on their own and do the wildcat thing and sort of drag their leadership uh, into the twenty first century and into what into you know actually uh, right. amplifying the demands that they have. I like that idea that you can strengthen a union by defying its leadership. That's a really interesting concept that I haven't ever explored before. Well, because the the leaders are comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you got to because they're senior, things worked out for them and it's just not working out for everybody below. So they got it. You got to have you got to make noise and bang some pots and pans. Mm. Uh, 
one thing I've also noticed, and uh, now that I've been here for visiting for about a week, is that man, comedy in New York is just so much better than it is in L.A. It kills me how much better comedy is here. Uh, why do you think that is? Because uh, you can do it four to five times a night here. And in L.A., at least when I visit, uh, it's like a 45-minute drive between spots. So you get a spot in uh, Glendale, and then you got to drive to Altadena. Oh, I there. Oh, but Glendale and Altadena are right next to each <laughs> then, other. That's a shitty then, example. And then you got to go to the West Side Comedy Theater. All right, there we go. Yeah, in, in Santa, Santa Monica. Monica. That one's right on the beach. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's it's a hike. You can't do you can't do all these spots in one night. Um, do you think that? Uh, also, you- what are you doing all day if you live in L.A. and like you're uh, you're in your house, you're in your bungalow? We're smoking weed and writing. Yeah, well, ho- I hopefully writing. But here, there's a lot. There's just the st- the stimulation of just being around, having so many interactions with right. humans over the course of a day. Yeah, my uh, my friend Mookie, he does this thing that always makes me giggle. Where when he walks outside and he runs into a friend, they'll fist bump and then just keep walking. That's right. It's wild. I, I don't. That's just not a thing that happens on the West Coast at all. I don't have to make plans to see people as often in New York, but uh, the minute that I walk outside, I run into somebody I know, and then I get on the subway, and I'm having another conversation with someone else I know, and then I show up at the spot, and there's... I So over the course of the day, without making any plans, I will run into 20 people who I know. In LA, my friends who have moved out there that are comics, they're like, I have to plan my whole week out or I'm in isolation in my apartment. Mm. So they have they have like a schedule for their week for who they have to make plans with intention to right. see people. Now, it, it's interesting because we are in this uh, relatively new medium. I mean, it's not really that new. It's just more, it's just never been easier to do before, which is, you know, podcasting i actually don't love the word podcasting because it ties us to apple's brand and the ipod and uh-huh. I, I like i, I kind of like internet radio but like whatever who gives a shit but oh god that's a lost fight that's <laughs> like who do i get <laughs> um but but do you feel well, that's that like uh, kleenex people call tissue kleenex i know what is nothing you can do about it it is what it is like the brand has conquered the medium uh but uh the reason i bring that up is like you you know at one point, Katie Halper moved from, or is she still on W? Are you still We're, both on WBAI? Yeah, she, the the show is still on WBAI, but um, you know, it's it, how do you get a broader listenership? You have to have it be something that people can download at any time they want, mm-hmm. and so it's also a podcast. And the podcast is better because the podcast. Uh, is extended in time, whereas we're constrained to one hour on WBAI. And do you find that more people listen to the radio show or the podcast? Or a hundred percent the podcast. Wow. Yeah, because the radio show you gotta you gotta tune in every week at that time. So that just that's gonna limit um, the audience, right? Right off the bat, right? Just by forcing people to go live. Yeah, I've never I haven't watched a TV show at its scheduled time. Uh, in 15 years. Right. That's something that's actually, I think, is very funny. Being in L.A. and yeah. meeting lots of actors who are excited to get a show on television. I don't I don't watch television. I don't know anybody under the age of 40 who has cable. I've never watched Saturday Night Live on a Saturday night. Like, you you know, if, I, if it's on, 
uh, it's on Hulu, and I'm watching it at noon for 20 minutes. And they get clipped for YouTube now, so you don't even need to watch the whole thing. Yeah. You can just watch a random sketch you want to see. Well, my friends do sets on late night, and they're like, oh, he's doing Conan tonight, or she's doing Fallon. I, yeah, I'll watch it when it's on Facebook. Right. I'll watch days. your set on Conan or Fallon. Right. I'm not going to watch Conan or Brian or Jimmy Fallon. I don't care. Yeah. Like, which I feel like is a scary thing to say out loud for some comedians but we comedians have been trained uh for the past god 40 years to be completely independent they have no health care they have no union they're not part of any sort of uh organized group so how can comedians make things better for themselves oh there's no way there, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a hopeless <laughs> cause we're uh we we think of ourselves as independent contractors uh pretty much libertarian and um, and and the the most savvy of us have uh, become LLCs, mm-hmm. and you know you, you got to have two credit cards, one for all of your expenses, and you have all of your checks written to your LLC as opposed to you as a person. So we're at the forefront of uh, hyper um, capitalism and sort of you're becoming, a canary in the coal mine in a way. Yeah, yeah, we're we're the early adopters for uh, the human as corporation. That said, you're in New York, and even the crummiest of crummy bar shows, you're still likely to get 20 bucks for doing a set. In Los Angeles, people actively choose to perform for free. And that was always one of my biggest beefs with the LA comedy scene. Why do they do that? I I don't know. But there are free shows where nobody gets paid, and there are more of those than there are actual shows at clubs. And at the actual clubs, most people aren't getting paid either. You have to perform enough and eventually become a paid regular at a place like the comedy store, which is, to me, is just seems insane. Like, why? And the attitude when I talk to people is like, well, we can tour or go to New York and make the money that we get from our credits in L.A. I just don't think that's true anymore, though. I have a good friend who we just had an episode with, uh, a guy named Mike Mitchell, who does a show called Doughboys. And he was on that show Love on Netflix. He makes more money doing the Patreon than he does the Netflix show. So everything is just totally fucking warped. Yeah. Yeah, what I... uh, I I think the ideal is to have uh, people pay you personally. My Venmo is Gabriel-Pacheco. We're keeping that on. I'm not cutting that, I promise. <laughs> yeah, so if you like anything I say, go to my website at gabepacheco.com and give me money in my Venmo. All right. Because that's basically where we're at. And mm-hmm. this idea of uh, artists had patrons right. uh, for thousands of years, and then it's only recently that the artists have um, shifted away from this idea of having a, a patron. Uh, to like, man, I hope I get a job as a corporate creative doing graphic design and branding for some nonsense company. Like There's Subaru. plenty of startups, yeah. <laughs> or uh, whatever. Yeah, any car company. Any- Jizzly. Yeah, so now now artists, now people are trying to funnel their creativity and shoehorn it into uh, getting a straight-laced 9-to-5 job and calling themselves corporate creatives. But really just, yeah, like I like the idea of having a patron. And what Patreon has done is it's democratized that. So it's not just one person that's Mm going to be your uh, benefactor, but it could be, you know, a thousand people giving you just a a shekel, throwing one shekel in. Right. It's it's that weird thing that that, uh, God, like one of these self-help guys is like, you need a thousand true fans or whatever. (laughs) I don't know how much of that's bullshit or not, but uh, 
I think if a thousand people give you five bucks a month, that is actually a better way to make a living than having a video you make get 10 million views. You're also not beholden to anybody except those people. And when I listen to, I listen to so many podcasts. I love podcasts. I think they're the modern day zines. I think it's like, this is, it's like, uh, it's like how Gutenberg's printing press, you know, created a revolution, uh, for information. Um, podcasting has created another revolution for uh, how we can get our opinions out there and not have them be filtered through, you know, any sort of uh, corporate stakeholders. Well, you, you, you know, you don't have to um, uh, espouse, uh, you don't have to promote some product that you don't really care about uh, if you're saying things that resonate with real people. Right. And not products. You have a fucking awesome trade paperback collection that I keep <laughs> looking at mid-interview. You've got the Punisher Max run. You've got, it's all Garth Ennis, who absolutely got the character better than anyone else did. You've got Crisis on Infinite Earths, Avengers Disassembled. Which, uh, you got the, the Civil War and Civil War Captain America under Ed Brubaker. You have, uh, is that Devil in Cell Block D? Devil Inside and Out? <laughs> Uh, King of Hell's Kitchen. You have some sick comics. Uh, oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Gang War from Frank Miller. The Sandman. You even have... Uh, why do you have volume 13 of The Walking Dead? Hey, man. Look, I just... <laughs> you don't have the other 12? <laughs> no. I used to have uh, Walking Dead one through just like the first uh, 100 episodes issues. And, um, you know, they're all in D.C. now. They're all in Washington. Do you think The Walking Dead is fascist? I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and, like, the idea of... A benevolent strongman in charge? Uh, yeah, and, like, who essentially... Rick is not only just a benevolent strongman, he he is a cyclical strongman. He is a failure. He keeps failing. He keeps... The, the, the cycle for Walking Dead is Rick and the gang find a new home. Free from the zombie threat. Oh, it's safe. Let's settle in. Oh, there's a shitload of people who are already there. Let's kill all those people who are already there. Let's fight with them. Uh, and, and then it doesn't matter because the zombies all roll in and then they have to go. R- rinse, repeat. So you- he's, uh, is he like the Israelites uh, uh, in Canaan? Like, he's like a, an like, Old Testament patriarch. These last volumes have added so much with like these like middle kingdoms and like the Game of Thrones stuff and the factions. But just like going back to like the, the, the earlier arcs with the governor. And I think, like, why, why is, why is Rick the hero in any of this? Like, he just, he's not good at what he does. He is, he's missing an arm. He's gotten everyone he's loved killed, and yet he still demands this power. And the audience is then expected to root for that. Am he, I being a dick here, or what? What do you think? Uh, I think um, what what I find interesting in The Walking Dead is seeing all of the different iterations of human government. So. Rick is bad, but he's like, he's our, he's like the faulted guy stumbling through, but he's the least interesting part. What's most interesting is seeing all of these other uh, experiments in government. Right. That, uh, like the latest one's pretty interesting because it it's the most corporately fascist if you're if you're up to date i'm not i'm a few volumes behind i mean it's very it seems like a very well-run machine and the philosophy of the governors who dress up like they look like neo they look like uh 
they wear suits mm-hmm. and um it's a woman who's in charge and she talks in a uh human resources type way around would you you'd go as far as to say maybe clinton-esque uh oh yeah clinton obama-esque uh sort of like an antiseptic technocratic yes data-driven interesting it's not yeah so very much like uh you know a character's like oh i I just found out that my daughter's alive here um in the in this uh colony and she's like wow i can that's probably i can tell that that would emotionally affect you and right now might not be the best time for us to have this meeting why don't we deal with that first and then circle back around to have this conversation circle back and then (laughs) touch base are my two favorite let's touch base in a little bit that's how you know you're dealing with somebody in business when they say touch base nobody talks like that there's that sense of uh you know, um, an understanding of emotional intelligence, but to be used to further manip- as a form of control, mm-hmm. you know, which is HR, human resources. And so it's this mix of uh, highly organized, uh, emotionally intelligent um, uh, fascism with um, a hyper-militarized uh, arm of government. Mm. Sounds familiar. Maybe I'm not giving Kirkman enough credit. Yeah, so that's, I don't know. So, yes, who knows? Uh, Rick is terrible, but it's really not about him. It's about exploring all of the other forms of government that also have failed. Can't believe they killed Carl in the show. How fucking stupid is that? Yeah, yeah. Crazy. I stopped I stopped watching after last season, after they killed uh, our man Glenn. Ugh. Glenn also, I mean, Glenn got a... Uh, he was the heart he never of the show. Should have been, he never should have been killed in the comics either, in my opinion. But like, he was just <laughs> always my favorite guy. My favorite Walking Dead right now is still season one of the Telltale game. Have you played that? No. Oh, you got to download that shit right now. For Is it for... It's uh, on everything. It's on your phone. It's on computers. It's on consoles. It's just all about this... Uh, you're like a, a, an escaped convict, a guy named Lee Everett who uh, is his uh, transport to prison is attacked by zombies, so he goes on the run, and he meets this girl named Clementine, and he teaches her how to survive. And it's very much like a surrogate father-daughter story. And uh, I cried a few times, I'm not going to lie. And very rarely does any genre property evoke that kind of emotion in me. I feel like I'm pretty numb after immersing myself into 30 years of nerd shit. Yeah. But, uh... I gotta say, like, we're talking about The Walking Dead, but, um, zombie movies, the Romero zombie films were totally, uh, in, um, formative for me. Because mm-hmm. I saw them as a little kid. You like they've... Romero, the, uh, the priest, and you like Romero, the, the filmmaker. Those are your, your yeah. you're a Romero and Romero guy. Yeah, uh, it, it all comes back full circle. Yes, beautiful. The serpent has eaten its tail. <gasps> Uh, what is your favorite Romero movie? My favorite one now is uh, the one I think about the most based on where we're at is Land of the Dead. I do too. Nobody likes Land of the Dead and it's fucking amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It's uh it's in it's basically because of you know where we are today. Mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper's character is with uh, his with his his gated like it's a presidium, basically. Like, how do you even describe his compound? It's Trump, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's that he's that businessman salesman, Trump now. Um, and when it came out, it reminded me of the Green Zone in Iraq, um, and this sense of having a gated community that's a that's like a mall with like a cushy, bougie group of people that think everything's okay. 
this, yeah, the you, and then you go outside and you see what's really going on. And and yeah, and then you've got this like militarized component of the uh of the human population that has to go out and sort of like extract resources from the wild where mm-hmm. the uh where the zombies live. Yeah, w- one of the most evocative moments I think was actually towards the beginning where you see that uh, the zombie cage matches happening happening in town. It's like, these people are so completely and utterly fucked that the only thing that gives them a sense of power is to watch the, the very thing that's destroyed all of them fight each other in, like, a little controlled pit. Yeah. Like, that is the, that's all they have left, because they've been completely decimated by the, 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 the Z's. But, it, uh, but every single one of those films, you know, from Night of the Living Dead with its like cool composed protagonist that's like a very like prescient uh, uh, like an obama type character. Well also I think one of the first I mean f- like one of the first black leads in a major B movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, hadn't been done really in that kind of way in low budget filmmaking. And like the the bleak and uh, ironic um ending to that first film right. also blew me away the first time I saw it. Um but then, you know, just uh i like uh, growing up in dc i grew up in dc in the 80s and so we were always thinking about uh crime white flight and sort of the uh the uh falling apart of like the urban centers mm. in, around the united states and when i watched uh dawn of the dead to see still one of my favorite movies those characters hop in their helicopters and escape pittsburgh to to flee to the mall in the suburbs like that really resonated with me and like the almost like the race war at the beginning of that when you've got the uh SWAT teams uh storming the uh the black and Puerto Rican like projects right so, yeah all of white that white flight yeah absolutely i'm uh, i'm actually surprised none of them ever took place in detroit or anything like that all right, that's right well romero another thing i liked about him is the idea of uh, regional um, pop culture. Mm-hmm. So I love George Romero because he uh, continued to make movies in Pittsburgh. And I like the same reason that I like John Waters. I was about to say, he knows Baltimore no- more than any other filmmaker. Yeah. And, and when you see that uh, the United States is bigger than uh, New York and it's bigger than L.A., and there's something really interesting about having people create art where the context is another part of the is country. Is in the heartland rather than where it's almost expected to be. One thing I've always – that's driven me crazy about the way that New York versus L.A. are portrayed is that in New York uh, – and I think Woody Allen really popularized this. Everything about the architecture and the people are, are fetishized to – to, to what feels almost <laughs> to like an absurd degree with me. Now, I know people really, really feel passionate about New York in ways that people in L.A. don't. But when L.A. gets filmed, it's always like palm trees, the Hollywood sign, like models. and Rollerblading like, on Venice Beach. Yeah, but like most of L.A. is like, you know, like Armenian mechanics and, and, and working class uh, you know, people at gas stations and, and, and insane traffic where you're just sitting around all day and, and, and nothing actually moves. <laughs> I mean, maybe that is, I don't know, there's something about that. But but I, I think that there is there is so much more. Maybe I'm just bitching about how L.A. is portrayed. Maybe the way that New York's portrayed is, is actually good. But New York it always has this sheen on it where despite all of its grit, 
everyone always comes together. Everyone's got each other's back. It's New York, and we all love each other. I always like. I you, this sounds like a, ever a one scene in every a Spider-Man movie. Right, right. Like <laughs> yeah, like the scene where the every one of these Marvel comics movies has a scene where like the real heroes or the firefighters or like the police officer who like you know takes care of the baby after Spider-Man pulls him out of a fire or whatever. Uh, but in L.A., it's just like I feel like if there was like some awful terrorist attack, people would just complain that it would take longer to get around. Like, oh man, well, I guess my commute's fucked. Like, the only a time went every- off downtown. <laughs> the only time everybody gets together in L.A. is in that scene in uh, Independence Day, right, right before the UFO <laughs> blasts them all. Uh, oh man, bits. that's a great scene. <laughs> Did you ever see Independence Day too? It's so fucking bad. No, half no. of that movie is like two kids and Judd Hirsch just on a road trip. I have no idea what they were thinking. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Gabe. I really, really appreciate it. Where can we find your stuff? Hey, you can find me at Gabe underscore Pacheco on Twitter. You can go to GabePacheco.com for everything else, all my social media, and most importantly, my Venmo is Gabriel hyphen Pacheco. Well, there you go, folks. Thanks. Have a great day and take it easy. All right. Bye-bye. People talk about me. They like to stop and stare. They try to say I'm a loser. I try to say I don't care. sculpted American society. And we're funnier than men, frankly. And it is a great podcast. You can find it at the Lady.plot on Twitter or find us on iTunes. Yeah, everyone likes us. We're very funny. Like what you hear? Want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.